Well, welcome everybody to Downtown Harbor Church. If it is your first time here, my name is John. I am the lead pastor, and I don't know if you've noticed, but we've got windows open today. This is really, I mean, listen, when you rent a facility, you never know what you're walking into. And we saw this, we go, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting because now I can see you and I can see you judging me and like not paying attention. I mean, I don't blame you, but just like now it's just very obvious. My one friend goes, you know, we're going to make faces all day long. So I'm not, oh, there they are. I'm not going to look at them at all today. But if it is your first time here, welcome. Uh, it's a great day to visit. We are in week four or part four of this series that we're calling Let's Try This Again. And essentially, we're having a conversation about our faith. And as you kind of saw the bumper allude to, many of us sort of maybe grew up in the church or were given our faith as children. But as we got older, life and the pressures and the trials and the tribulations of being an adult impacted our faith started to chip away at our faith. Maybe we had a couple of questions that didn't get answered. And the next thing you know, we were left with almost no faith at all. And it wasn't that we walked away from Christianity necessarily, but we just got to a place where our faith wasn't as important as it used to be. It didn't seem to have the same significance that perhaps we wish it had. And so what we're doing over the course of this series is asking the question, what would it look like if we were to rebuild our faith as adults? If we were to sort of hit the reset and say, all right, let's, let's try this again. Let's wipe the slate clean. Let's start from scratch. We're adults now. What would it look like for us to have an adult faith? And so every single week, we've been reinstalling the operating system of Christianity piece by piece with the hope and the goal that we can all have a firm foundation, a faith that as adults, it can withstand everything that we throw at it and, to be honest, thrive in any kind of situation. So as we're rebuilding our faith, uh, one of the things that uh, we struggle with is an issue that I want to talk to you about today. And this is an issue that a lot of us push back against. It's an issue that a lot of us sort of rebel against. But if we're going to rebuild our faith, this is something that we've got to get a handle on. So today, I want to talk to you about rules. So every religion has its rules, and we don't like them. Okay, people, you know, generally speaking, humans don't like rules. We don't do well with rules. We always kind of fight back against. We say, oh, rules were meant to be broken, says the people that always break the rules. Okay, but every religion has rules. And a lot of you, because I've spoken with you, I've had conversations with you, I've, we've had, you know, emails and DHC nights. I know a lot of you have walked away from Christianity at some point, have walked away from God, have walked away from the church because of rules. You disengage from your faith because just these rules just seem like they were too much for you. Because many of us, growing up in the church at least, we had to deal with two sets of rules. You had God's rules, and then you had your church's rules. And the lines between these two often got blurred for you. And the reason I've got your highlight is because I don't mean like the church. I mean, your specific church seemed to have its own specific rules. And it seems like every church has its own rules. And so maybe you grew up in a church where they said that alcohol was a sin. And then maybe you moved towns and you started going to a different church. And that church said, well, no, alcohol is not a sin, but you should be responsible in the way that you drink it. Okay, interesting. Um, and then maybe you went to a church that said, uh, uh, let's see, women and men shouldn't ride alone in a car together. Fine. Or maybe you went to a church where they said, if you have sin in your life, you need to go to someone in ministry and confess those sins. And, and what begins to happen is we look at all of these various rules that, 
that we're seeing, and we started saying to ourselves that they, they just seem very arbitrary and onerous and just a breeding ground for hypocrisy. And, and it, you just felt like all of these rules were being heaped upon you willy-nilly. Every time you were in church, you walked around like you were on eggshells because you were afraid that if you broke any of these rules, that you, you would be cast into the pits of hell. All right? And many of you were made to feel like that, that if you screwed up, that if you broke these rules, that's the end for you. And so what I want to do for us today is just as we're hitting the reset on faith, I want us to hit the reset on rules. And just in this church, I want to make sure that we can get a good handle on these things. Because as adults, we've got a lot of mixed signals when it comes to these rules. In our daily life, we've got rules coming at us from every single way. So how, how do we understand all of that? So the first sort of building block that we need to begin to learn and understand to build a foundation when it comes to rules is that rules always assume a relationship. Anytime that you find yourself being held accountable to a set of rules, it is safe to assume that you are in some type of relationship. And I've come up with two categories, at least in my opinion, of relationships that you might find yourself in. I'm going to call them the family model and the club model, right? Let me talk to you about the family model first. So when you were born into a family, so to speak, and I'm now generalizing families, but when you were born into a family and you were a child in that family, your parents gave you rules, okay? Because you were a child in that family, your parents gave you rules. To approach from a different angle, your parents didn't give you rules to make you a part of that family. Rather, because you were a part of that family, they gave you rules. Does that make sense? Are we on the same page so far? Okay, so make sure. Now, here's something else that I've learned. Parents only set rules for their own children, which is unfortunate because you've met a lot of kids that can benefit from your parenting skills, right? You're laughing because you know this. Listen, I don't have kids, all right, but I love to dole out parenting advice. Drives my wife crazy, okay? And particularly, I like to give advice on how to discipline your kids, right? Because this is something I know. And, and famously, my in-laws, they now call me Mr. Discipline. That's my name. Because at one point, about a year ago, I may or may not have disciplined my one-year-old nephew using tactics that I learned from Caesar Milan on the Dog Whisperer, okay? He was acting up one day, and I just gave him one of these. It worked. Kid has not been the same since, all right? He is, there's, he is not, but like, I, this is a thing for me. I like to just sort of talk about discipline. And my wife was like, you know, you really shouldn't do that. You really shouldn't talk to people about how to discipline their kids because, you know, God's going to give us a bad kid. To which I reply, I don't think it works like that, okay? <laughs> so it's not a problem. So this is the theological discussions we have in the Grippa household. But that's not how it works. So let me reiterate just the family model so we're all on the same page. The family model is the idea that rules are given to us because we're in a family, not to make us part of the family. The other relationship, the other category, I'm going to call the club model. So let me explain to you the club model. The club model is this idea that you agree to a set of rules in order to get into the club and to stay in the club. So let's say whatever the club may be, I don't know what it is, but they hand you a contract and they say, all right, here's the rules and regulations. You want to abide by these? You can get in. You say, yeah, okay, great. Once you're in, you have to continue to do these things. And if you don't, you're out. All right? And so an example could be your job. 
They hire you, you're given the employee manual, and as long as you abide by those rules, they will continue to pay you, and you can stay there. Another example are like social organizations, fraternities, sororities. There are certain expectations. If you want to be a brother in this fraternity, if you want to be a sister in this fraternity, and if you do not meet those expectations, you're out. So, unlike the family model, where you are given rules because you are in a relationship, with a club model, you are given rules to establish the relationship. And that's the big difference. And the point of all of this is that when you find yourself being held accountable to a set of rules, you can pretty much bet you are in one of these categories, either a family model or a club model. But this is where we start to run into problems because we begin to transpose our various relationships onto God and we get confused. And we start to wonder, okay, well, with my relationship with God, is it is it like I'm in with God and no matter what I do, we're all good. I mean, there's going to be some discipline. There's going to be some rules. But no matter what I do, we're, we're in because we're family. Or, or is this kind of thing where like he gives me rules and as long as I do these rules, I can get in. And if I keep doing those rules, I can stay in. But if I break one of those rules, I'm out. Which, which one is it? Because it seems like some Christians are saying one thing and other Christians are saying another thing. So, so what is it? I mean, is our relationship with God a family model or is it a club model? Because some of you were taught that it's a family model, but it feels a whole heck of a lot like a club model. Some of you were taught that it's a club model, and it has never felt like a family at all. So which is it? How do you know? Because at some point, every single one of us is going to wonder, what does God expect of me? And when has God accepted me. So to begin to kind of chip away at these questions, I want to introduce you to, perhaps for the first time, um, the most famous set of rules I believe the world has ever seen. They're not the oldest rules, but they're the most famous rules, and they're known as the Ten Commandments. Here's an interesting thing about the Ten Commandments. No one knows all Ten Commandments. You only know like two or three at a time, okay? And depending on how old you are, you know different ones. You kind of know, well, you know, don't steal and don't kill anybody. And if you're younger, you kind of think, well, don't lie. That's one of them. Then you're older. It's like don't commit adultery. But no one seems to know or have memorized all ten, but there are, in fact, ten. And before we dive in, I just want to kind of set the context for the Ten Commandments. I want to show you how they kind of line up with where we were last week and how they fit into the entire story. To do that, I want to talk about Abraham again. Now, on Monday, I went to Christina, the girl who was singing over here, and I go, hey, I got an idea for like a, a family tree. I kind of want it to look like this. Can you make this happen? And she goes, oh, I got that handle. And she came up with this beauty, right? This is a Picasso. So let me just talk to you about this. Last week, if you weren't here, briefly, we talked about Abraham. God went to Abraham about 1800 BC, and he goes, I'm starting it all with you, and he gave him three promises. One of the promises was that many great nations were going to come from him. And what we talked about is that Abraham and his wife sort of took things on themselves to solve this matter, and they ended up having an illegitimate son named Ishmael, through whom the Arab nation would be born later down the line. And if you're interested in hearing more about that, you can go on our website and listen more. But today I want to focus on this side of the family tree. 
At the age of 99, we talked about, Abraham and Sarah finally had a child. And we said, that's gross. But that's what the scripture says, okay? At the age of 99, they finally had a kid, and his name was Isaac. And God said, I'm going to confirm my covenant through your son, Isaac. Now, I'm about to give you the fastest Jewish history you've ever heard in your life, and you're going to miss so much, but that's okay. Okay, here's the deal. Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob then had 12 sons. Those 12 sons would later become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, Jacob did have one very famous son, and his name was Joseph. Joseph had a coat of many colors. We don't need to get into all that today. At some point in Joseph's life, he becomes what amounts to being the prime minister of Egypt. And because Joseph listens to God, God said to Joseph, hey, listen, there's going to be a famine coming down the road. You need to get enough food stored up so that you're going to be okay. Joseph listens, and Egypt is great. They have plenty of food. Then the famine strikes. And all of the surrounding countries in the Middle East begin to make their way into Egypt because Egypt's got the food. And who shows up? All of Joseph's family. And he feeds them, and they put down roots. Joseph's family, these other 11 brothers, they get married. They start having kids. According to the scripture, they must start having a lot of kids and breeding like crazy because all of a sudden it becomes an issue. All of a sudden the Egyptians are going, ooh, we got a Hebrew problem, all right? Got a lot of Hebrews in here. Essentially, what has become, they've got like a nation of Hebrews within the nation of Egypt. And so the officials go to Pharaoh, the guy in charge. Pharaoh, we got a problem. We got to figure out what to do with this Hebrew problem. And Pharaoh says, I can solve this. We're going to enslave them. And so Pharaoh enslaves all of the Hebrew people. All of Abraham's descendants went into slavery for 400 years. Think about that for a second. All they knew was slavery for 400 years. That's longer than America has been a country. But here's the amazing thing. Last week, when we talked about the starry night experience, remember this, when God brought Abraham out from the tent, and he said, Abraham, take a look at the stars. See if you can count the stars if you can. This is how many descendants you will have. And then God said something amazing to Abraham. And I didn't read this to you last week because I wanted to keep it in my pocket for this week. God said, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. Now, I don't know about you, but I find this to be absolutely incredible. Whenever I see prophecy in the Old Testament come true, I think that is just absolutely amazing. But God didn't just give Abraham bad news that night. He continued. He said, but I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, they, meaning the Jewish people, your descendants, will come away with great wealth. And this is where our story picks back up for the day. So God taps a man and says, all right, it's your time to stand up because I'm going to use you to free my people. I'm going to use you to deliver the prophesied beatings to Egypt. And his name was, you know what his name was? Moses. See, you guys don't even to come to church. You know this stuff already, all right? So Moses famously goes to the Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh goes, mm, no, I'm not going to do that. 
okay? To which God says, all right, here comes the beatings. And God then sends plague after plague after plague, trying to force the Pharaoh's hand, trying to force him to free the Jewish people. Eventually, it gets so bad. Eventually, the Pharaoh can't take it anymore. And he goes, that's it. I can't. Okay, you're free. You're free. Just get out of here. Take, take whatever you want, whatever we have, you can have it. You want the gold, take the gold. You want the silver, take the silver. But just go and go fast. And the Jewish people are set free, fulfilling the prophecy that they would be released, that Egypt would be punished, and they would come away with great wealth. So Moses leads them now out of Egypt. They're now walking in the desert for three weeks, okay? This is the first time they've been by themselves. Really. This is the first time they've ever had any kind of freedom at all. They've known nothing but slavery for 400 years. They have almost no national identity. They know almost nothing about their ancestry. They they barely know God at this point. And after three weeks, God steps in and goes, all right, now, it's time to establish a little law and order here. And that's where the Ten Commandments come into play. This is where the most famous set of rules ever in the history of mankind make their debut. Now, before we dive into them, I want to read you something. What I'm going to read you, um, I would describe as the preamble to these Ten Commandments. God's introduction to the Ten Commandments. And for me, what I'm about to read you is the most important thing of the day. This is why we're here. Because what you're going to see here is it's going to shed some spotlight onto how rules and religion and God and law and we all kind of come together. How to process all that. So God says this. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. That's how he starts off his preamble. He goes, I am the Lord your God. To which the Jewish people, I believe, would say, okay, so that's, okay, so you're our God? Yes. Okay. Which, so that makes us your people. Correct. Okay. When did this happen? Uh, how did this happen? And like, they're looking at me, I, I didn't do anything. Did you do anything? Because we didn't do anything. So when, when did we become your people? When, when, did, when, did, when did you become our God? How did, how? God keeps going. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Essentially, what he's saying here is, I am the Lord your God, who has done something for you, and you haven't done anything for me. I am the Lord your God who delivered you when you've given up hope. I am the Lord your God who has done something miraculous for you and you've done nothing for me. And I think the Jewish people would say, well, that's, yeah, that's true. We haven't done anything for you because we don't know what you want us to do. I mean, you have given us no rules. So yeah, I mean, you have done things for us, but we haven't done anything for you because we don't know what you expect. We don't know what you want. See, essentially what God is saying here in these opening two verses, he's saying, before I give you the rules, I want you to know that you're mine. Before we get into those rules, and we'll get to the rules, I just want to make sure that you understand that you're mine and I'm yours. We're a family. I'm the father, you're the children. 
I just want to make sure before we get into any kind of rules that that's established, that we are a family. And then he gives them the very first commandment. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. To which I think they would say, yeah, not a problem. I mean, any, any God that can get us out of Egypt, who can free us, we have our own land now, our children have a future now, we've seen the plagues that you do, we're on board, yes, check mark, what else do you got? This one is not a problem for us. See, he, here's the point, here's why we're looking at all this. The Ten Commandments were a confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. Let me just read that again. The Ten Commandments were a confirmation of, not a condition of, Israel's relationship with God. God didn't go to them and say, all right, guys, here's the deal. I'm giving you Ten Commandments. And if you do all ten, then I'll be your God and you can be my people. If you get like eight of them, okay, you could still be my people. But any less than eight, I got to get some new people. Right? This is not what he said. And don't miss this. He could have. He could have made his relationship with those people conditional. But 1,500 years before Jesus stepped onto the scene, God looked at his people and said, I just want you to understand that I am the Lord your God, and you have done nothing to deserve it. And I think as Christians, we miss this point. We, we, we miss this amazing truth because most of us don't read the Old Testament. Let's be honest. You've tried. You get a little confused. I don't blame you, all right? And, but many of us, we, kinda, we, we, we say we're Christians, but we kind of say things like, eh, I'm more of a New Testament kind of a guy. Eh, I'm more of a Jesus kind of a person. I don't really read the Old Testament at all. And I get the temptation to do that, but just as an off-handed you know, conversation, real, you're setting yourself up for a shaky foundation. If you try to divorce your Christian faith in the Old Testament, you are setting yourself up for a shaky foundation because remember, Jesus was firmly Jewish. Jesus taught from the law and the prophets. That's what he called the Old Testament. So for us to sort of say, mm, I'm not going to read it, that's a problem. But let me tell you why you shouldn't be afraid of the Old Testament. Let me tell you why the Old Testament is actually very encouraging for Christians. Because the Old Testament is one long story about a parent, that's God, never giving up on his children. And when you begin to read the Old Testament, when you get to the sections called the prophets, when you start reading guys like Isaiah, when you start reading guys like um, Jeremiah, it becomes very clear that God never, ever gives up on his people. And you read these stories about the Jewish people. They would mess up. They would screw up. They would disobey. God would use these, these prophets to sort of give them a little, you know, um, obedience training. He would gonna go, whoa, 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 one two, right? You keep breathing. He goes like two and a half. That's it. You're in timeout. That's the entire Old Testament. God keep putting the Jewish people in timeout, trying to bring them back to him. And what you see is that God, no matter what the Jewish people did, never gave up on them because they were his family. They weren't a club. Now, if that's how he treated the Jewish people, the big question for the day is, is that how God treats you? I mean, if you are serious about restarting your faith, and I believe you are because you're here, then you seriously need to consider the claim that rules are a confirmation of, 
not a condition of a relationship with God. That God only gives rules to his children. Because if this is true, that's a game changer for us as Christians. If, if Israel is a model that we can learn from, that, that you can mess up in your walk with God time and time again, and God will keep coming back, keep trying to bring you back, keep chasing you down, keep disciplining you, not to pay you back, but, but to bring you back, if that's true, that shows us how deep and wide God's love is for his family. But we often wonder, well, was this only available to the Jewish people? Because we've heard that they're the chosen people. So did God choose Abraham, seemingly at random, and go to Abraham and say, hey, Abraham, for you and your descendants, you guys, you know what, just, you know, you guys are going to be on the family model. You're in my family, and whether you break the rules or not, you're still in my family. I'm going to discipline you, but you're you're always going to be in my family. But for everybody else in the world, those Americans, mm, they're going to be on the club model. I'm going to hold them accountable to the same commandments I'm calling you guys to do, but for them, they're going to have to work their way into my club. And if they mess up, they're out. But mm, I'm never going to let them know exactly where they stand with me. See, but under the starry sky, God made very clear that this love that we're talking about here is not just for Abraham. It's not just for the Jewish people. Read it for yourself. This is one of the promises God's made. He said this, And all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is what God said to Abraham. All the people, all mankind, not just Abraham, Not just the Jewish people, every single person on earth. Through Isaiah the prophet, God would continue to expand on this promise. And he said this. He said, I will also, speaking to the Jewish people, I will also make you a light for the Gentiles. The Gentiles are the rest of us. The Gentiles are anybody who is not Jewish. God is looking at them and saying, hey, Jewish people, my chosen people, I just need you to understand that you in your life need to be a signpost pointing the rest of the world to me so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That's your job, Jewish people. Israel, I love you. I chose you. But this is so much bigger than you. Abraham, I love you. I chose you. I started this all with you, but this is so much bigger than you. And 1,500 years after the Ten Commandments were handed to Moses and handed to the Jewish people, Jesus steps onto the scene to be a conduit for this salvation to reach the ends of the earth. And John, who is one of Jesus' best friends, John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, continues to expound on Isaiah 49, 6. And he says this, Yet, to all, all peoples, all people groups everywhere, yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who behaved, 
believed. In his name, he gave the right to become club members, children of God. And it wasn't until this, I, I saw something here for the first time, and I, obviously I've, I've looked at this so many times. I never saw this before in, until this week when we did it in conjunction with Abraham. I believe that what John is doing right here in this moment is mirroring what happened under that starry sky 4,000 years ago when Abraham believed in God and God gave him a righteous standing. And I think what John is doing here for every single person in this room, every single person who gets their hands on the New Testament, who opens up to John 1.12, I think what he's saying to you is this. You have the ability to have your own starry night experience with God. You can become a child of God. You can become a son of God, a daughter of God, by saying to Jesus, just as Abraham said to God, I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. But I believe. And I trust in you. So what's the practical? What do you do with a message like this? If it's your first time here at DHC, every single week we put this word on the screen because we want to make sure you can leave on a Sunday and know exactly what to do with what you've heard. So in this series of rebuilding our faith, it's, it's good to have a, a time of sort of introspection. It's good to have a time where you sort of look within and find out what's going on inside of us. To look back and say, where did, where did I come from in my faith journey? And maybe if it's possible for you to pinpoint perhaps where it all went wrong, where that link, that weak link was in the chain. So to help you sort of think about all that, I want to give you two questions for this week just to, to sort of marinate on. Growing up or at any point in your faith journey, did you feel like your standing with God was based on the family model or the club model? Did you believe and feel like you were in God's family? That he gave you rules because you were a child of God and that if you messed up, you couldn't be kicked out of that family because you were a child of God. There would be discipline, there were rules, but you were in his family. Or did you feel like it was a club? That you were handed a list of rules and regulations and if you accomplished those rules, you might get in. And if you kept those rules, you might be allowed to stay, but you never knew exactly where you stood with your heavenly Father. And based on what you heard today, has your opinion changed at all? Secondly, just to make you sweat a little bit, because, you know, you always want to leave church feeling a little bit guilty. Um, let me ask you one last question. What's one of God's rules that you know you're breaking? What's one of those rules that you, that you know you're breaking? What's going on in your life right now that you know for a fact God has said, I don't want that for my children. That activity, that behavior, that mindset, that whatever you're doing and you know what you're doing, God has said, look, look, as one of my kids, I don't, I, I don't want that for your life. What's it going to take for you to get to a place where you say, Father, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I know that you know what's best for me. 
even when I don't like it or I even disagree with you. I know that you want what's best for my life. So this week, as you're kind of mulling over all this stuff, just remember that through Jesus, God invites you into his family. This is a promise that is available to every single person in this world to the farthest reaches. You can be a part of God's family if you just trust and believe in his son. He is that conduit for God's salvation. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity that we could come here today. I just have a conversation about rules. Lord, unfortunately, so many of us, when it comes to rules inside the local church, just have so much scar tissue. We've just been beaten down by them, and sometimes they are arbitrary. But God, your scripture is very clear that you have given us rules because you are our Father. And we are your children. And you only want the best for us. Lord, as we attempt to rebuild our faith, as we attempt to restart our faith, I pray that today by the power of the Holy Spirit, if there's someone in this room that has just been beaten down by the rules in some way or fashion, I pray that this will be a new day for them. That they might begin to understand that your rules are a confirmation of your love for us, not a condition of your love for us. I pray that you would be with us all. Every single one of us has stuff going on in our lives, things that we have been crying out to you in prayer. And I just pray that today, Lord, you would meet us at the place of those needs, that we would feel you in a powerful, powerful way. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.